Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. rocks. This week, we talked to Nir Solomon. Nir is the founder and director of the Integrative Gastroenterology Unit at Sheba Medical Center in Israel. He's also the co-founder and head of R&D at Evanature. We talked to him about nutraceuticals and what exactly they are. We talked to him about their CureQD protocol that they developed to help people living with inflammatory bowel disease. We talked to him about the role of integrative therapies in IBD care. And we talked to him about research in Israel. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia. And we are very excited to be joined by Nir Solomon. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Again, we are very excited to talk to you about your background and why you've joined us, because I really think people are going to be excited to hear all of your expertise. But we start with a very unprofessional question of what are you drinking? Well, I'll give you an unprofessional answer. Um, uh, right now, I'm after after my beer because I sort of jumped the gun when you told me to get a to get a drink ready, and, and I, so I actually finished the beer before we even started. But so I'm actually after an an espresso, to be honest. But um, but I'm with you guys. I love it. Listen, we have a fair amount of nights where we're either drinking coffee or tea because it's yeah, it's too we're still working. No, yeah. but I'm a simple guy. You know, so a beer is good enough for me. Sounds good. Do you have a favorite beer? The lighter, the uh, the better, the more okay. the pale. I don't like those IPA things that are coming out. I guess I'm old fashioned. <laughs> nice. Robin, what about you? It is very busy work season for me. I am drinking a tangerine tea, but it also has a little bit of caffeine in it. But it's very, very lovely. Tangerine, lovely. Nice. nice. That does sound good. I am drinking a bountiful blueberry daiquiri. It's uh-huh. very good. I am impressed. I am impressed. And again, we are very excited to have you on the show. Next question for you is what is your IBD connection? What brought you into this community? I am a medical profession. I deal with, I've been treating patients for almost 20 years now. And, but I come from a little bit different background. I actually come from background of herbal medicine and I founded the integrative medicine unit in the gastro department at Sheba Medical Center, which is the largest hospital in Israel. And it's actually ranked now for three years in a row by Newsweek as one of the 10 best hospitals in the world. So, you know, our CEO always likes me to push that in. So there I did it. But he, so it's it's been a wild ride since uh, I started off with uh, with herbal medicine. Then I, I specialized in gastroenterology in China, and that's uh, just before that I was in India for a while. And there, uh, well, actually, while I was in China already, and I was sitting with my translator and with the doctor that I was learning with, Professor Lang Chao. He was the head of the gastro department at Chengdu University, and I was studying with him. And he only spoke Chinese. And I had a translator with me and uh, she was started debating with with him talking about something that was called yin huo, uh, which in Chinese sort of um, means, uh, I could translate it as sort of like an inner fire or an earth fire or something like that. And, you know, I overheard it and I said, well, what is that? And she said, I'll explain later. And then she t- when after the session, she explained that this is um, actually a theory from a 12th century book called the Piwei Lun, which advocates that all diseases known to man are rooted in the digestive system and the earth element in Chinese medicine. And that was fascinating for me. So I went to a bookstore and I could not find a book in English. It was not translated at the time. So I bought it in Chinese and I can't read a word of Chinese, but I knew that if I'd have that book on my shelf, for long enough of time, I'd get inspired and I wouldn't forget it. And once the translation would come out, I'd get it. And that's exactly what happened a few years later. And then I read it. And since then, I've been that what sort of brought me into gastroenterology in general. And when I came in, I understood how 
what huge unmet need treatment of IBD now faces with medications that are not reaching even near the efficacy rates that we want, safety effects, and the poor quality of life that a lot of these patients have. And that's when I partnered up with Professor Shumwan Menchoin, who's the head of the gastro department at Shiva. Now he was head of the IBD unit back then. And that's where we started our journey with uh, research and development of nutraceuticals for IBD. This is super fascinating. I have lots and lots of questions. Let's start by defining nutraceuticals. That's sort of a new a new kind of uh, term, actually, because uh, before that it would be called herbal, it still is called herbal medicine and so on. But that's really how, because there's a separation between what we call conventional medicine and pharmaceuticals, medications, drugs, and then that those traditional medicines, whether it be traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine from India, or each uh, culture has their own traditional medicine. And there, there's a long tradition of herbal medicine. There's that separation, which I found that is that needs to be bridged in some way. Uh, so that's what we do in the medical center in, in Shiba, where we take a natural compound and take it through the scientific uh, route and doing these, um, these laboratory and clinical trials with it that are through the conventional medicine standard or, or the design. And that's when it becomes a nutraceutical because it, it, the difference is, is that you have a very specific protocol on how you can use this natural compound. The knowledge came from the traditional medicine and the way we use it, but then, and, but the way we use it has come to sort of transform into a protocol where we know exactly what kind of indication, medical indication you want to give it to you, what's the correct dose, what's the correct follow-up, and then it can be administered and integrated into practical clinical care with patients. Before that, it was just sort of this sort of, yeah, you know, turmeric is an anti-inflammatory herb. Okay, what kind of inflammations does it treat? What organs does it reach? What's the dose? How long does it take for it to, to respond? How and so on and so on. So we had to understand. That's when we sort of said, okay, this is not really a herbal medicine. It's definitely not a pharmaceutical. So it's a nutraceutical. I'm interested in the studies that were done, like the actual clinical trials that you did to get to where you are now. Like, what was that process? How did you get started and decide to actually do the clinical trial process? Okay, so I'll I'll take you back a few years. We established the take, integrated take center. Take us all the way back. Take all, us all the way back. back. So then there was light, and then uh, well, anyway, a bit after that, what we established the integrative center in two thousand eight at Shiva, and then we started. I came all. I came in and started. You know guns blazing and thought, yeah, I'm going to treat everybody. Everybody's going to get so much better and I'm going to, you know, get all the fame that I want. No, I wasn't after fame, but I was, I thought, yeah, I'd be, I will to treat a lot of patients, get a lot of work. But then I thought that, you know, it's not working. It's just the medical system is not, it doesn't operate in that way. I'm not able to, you know, to give the exact treatments and the patients that are referred are not, uh, are too heterogeneous. And then I understood that I really want to get the message out. You know, the way conventional medicine speaks, the way science is the science, it has to be the science. It has to be through the gold standard clinical evidence that we're used to. And nobody's going to really trust or not in the, not as trust way, but no one is really going to endorse your clinical experience with patients, which may be anecdotal. But if you get 
good science and evidence behind it, that's when you can say, okay, we got something, or maybe we don't. So that's when we understood that we have to do this. So, but we, the fact is that, you know, the term bench to bedside in medicine. Okay. So that's when, you know, you take a pharmaceutical and you start on the bench in the lab and you do these tests on cell lines and then mouse models usually, and so on, then phase one, two, three in humans. And after that, if it goes a whole long way and you spend like a billion dollars on it and so on, you're going to get uh, medicine that is approved for humans. But the thing is with us is that we're, because these are already regulated as food supplements and you have the traditional knowledge behind them, they're already approved in humans, right? But we don't have enough basic science done in them. Nobody's done the lab work or, or not enough. So we sort of took advantage of that, uh, of that. And we set off, said, okay, what works in the clinic? What we actually, let's go to the end. Let's go the other way around. Let's go from bedside to bench. What works in the clinic? What can see? And then go ahead and do a clinical trial with that and then take it back to the basic science to show the mechanism and so on. So that's what we did with curcumin. So curcumin is known way before us. And curcumin is not turmeric, by the way. That's a common mistake uh, because turmeric is the, the, the herb, the spice, okay? That's where you take the root of the plant, you dry it, you grind it, and that's the herb we know from Indian cuisine. But that only contains about 2-3% of the active phytochemical called curcumin, which is responsible for the anti-inflammatory effect. So we isolate that and we concentrate it to a standardization of 95%. So we're actually getting a you know 30-fold increase in the anti-inflammatory effect. But not only that, we said, okay, we're going to treat IBD patients. So we want to get a formulation that is designed to treat IBD, meaning that it should be gut-directed. We should make the active compound available in the intestinal mucosa in high concentrations, designated to treat IBD. And that's what we did. We formulated that. And then we took it into a clinical trial. But that's the second step about it. So the second step is to understand, okay, we got the compound. Now we have enough uh, trust in it. We've seen good evidence to clean it. But what kind of patients do we want to start off with? Who are we going to treat with this in the clinical trial? So that's another way of how to integrate this into clinical care. So we say, okay, well, it's not going to substitute a medication. That's not our aim. We're going to take, for instance, mesalamine, which is a well-established, safe, effective drug for mild, moderate use and for maintenance of remission. We're not going to replace that. So what about those patients who are already taking that drug and when the maximum dose, but are failing it, they're still, they still have active disease and they need to move on to escalate into biologics, immune suppressant therapy, steroids, et cetera. What about those? Let's look at those. Those are actually a big part of the patient population. That's only that is about 35% of the patients who are failing first line and escalating into second line. So he said, let's take those patients and add on this gut-directed form of curcumin, which is called Cura, uh, C-U-R-A, that's what we call the, uh, the, the product, so to speak, and give it to them for four weeks and see if we can put them into remission and spare them escalating into that. So we did that. And that was between 2012 and four and 14 or 15, and, and and it worked. And it was it was neat because the IRB, the the Institutional Review Board, uh, the Helsinki Commission, was, so so to speak, was did not didn't allow us. We wanted to do a three months treatment with this herb, but they didn't allow us to give placebo to patients for three months because that's unethical. And I agree. So they only gave us four weeks, and I said this isn't going to work. Four weeks is just too short a time to get a clinical effect in these kind of patients. And I was dead wrong. We saw very high 
both clinical and endoscopic uh, response and remission in these patients. And the paper was published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Pathology, which was the fourth ranking journal in gastro at, at the time. And we were awarded the cover and an editorial. It was a big sort of form of fame that we had establishing this proof of concept that if you take a natural compound, but you do the scientific work right, you're going to have the impact that you want. So that's the story behind it. It's super interesting. And it's helpful to get kind of the, the full background on how you went about discovering what was maybe going to be the best option. I am curious, how did you, because there are a few things that I know we have heard from patients that like their family members and friends are like, oh, you just need to do whatever this this thing is. How did you settle on curcumin? Thank you. Curcumin, again, is the active compound. And we developed a gut-directed form of curcumin, which we call Cura. That's just the name of this gut-directed form formulation. And actually what happened, that was, that, again, that was published in 2015. But what we wanted to do after that was address the needs of more moderate, severe patients. And then, and this is a whole nother story uh, about, I was introduced to another herbal compound, which is called Indigo, when, which uh, we source a specific sort of specific kind of it, which we call QD, just the letters QD. That was a very uh, interesting compound. And when I, used to, I was introduced to by a, a colleague from Hong Kong, when one of my travels there in 2016, and I took it back to the clinic, it was a much less known herbal compound. Nobody knew about it. No, it was it was actually uh, difficult to obtain at that point. And I started using the clinic and I saw remarkable results. I mean, patients stopped, their rectal bleeding went away within three days, five days. And I like scratching my head and said, what's going on here? Maybe it's a placebo effect. Maybe I'm biased. What, what's going on here? And like in the fifth, sixth patients, I call, call up Shimwom and said, listen, some, I got something interesting here. I need another set of eyes. Uh, so we started, if you start referring patients together and treating them together to really see, and we saw that this is working really well. And then we developed a, a protocol and how these two compounds can work together, what we call the CURQD protocol. And this we established, again, started using around 2016-17. And it's a whole protocol that is very personalized, very adaptive, very constantly changing as the treatment progresses and how the patient responds to the treatment. It's a combination of these two, these two compounds for to treat um, uh, active IBD. And this has become a, a, a very popular treatment in Israel. So we have collaborations with all the leading medical centers there, all the IBD medical centers. And we started, and then we collected all the data from the patients that were referred. And then we said, okay, let's pull the data together systematically as we do in the scientific way and organize it. And then we did. And we saw incredible results. This was just in the last uh, six months or so. And the, the, we saw that this treatment is actually more effective than most of the medications used today in IBD. We saw that patients that were failing uh, two biologics and more, really refractory, moderate, severe, active patients failing two lines of biologics already, okay, uh, were, were responding to this treatment and achieving coastal healing within eight to 12 weeks. I mean, this is hard data that we, that we have. We collected it together um, and we published published it just recently in an APT journal, which is a, a very high uh, class journal, very uh, respectable journal. And then we had another randomized control trial because again, we wanted to get the control setting against placebo and we did that. And that was accepted just last week to, to, to clinical gastroenterology and pathology. So we're like, although we got very, very strong evidence and now we're saying, okay, guys, listen, this is available. This is accessible where patients can start using it yesterday. We're already treating so many patients in Israel, but how are we going to do it outside of Israel? And then uh, together with our hospital, we uh, we founded a company called Evinature. 
that's EVI nature in one word. And then we, we established that to disseminate this uh, treatment outside of Israel. And then we started uh, treating patients. We built a platform that has an assessment tool, which can diagnose, well, it doesn't diagnose a patient, of course, because they're already coming with a diagnosis, but it asks them about their diagnosis, medications that are using all the clinical indexes and so on. And based on some of their answers, we can recommend a, uh, a Christian protocol. And then help them uh, be treated with that to help uh, with their symptoms. So that that's what we did here. So my question is, we've had a couple of RDs on IBD specific RDs who talk about nutrition and medication working together, right? Nutrition, yeah. helping the medication be more effective. So is that what you're seeing here with the protocol? I know you mentioned it with the first one, they didn't have to fail that medication, move on to the second line. So is that mm-hmm. what you're doing here? It's making the medication that they're on more effective? Uh, no, I don't think that that's what it's doing. It's not making the medication work better. It's a whole different uh, process, a whole different pharmacokinetic activity. Most of the patients that are referred to us are actually failing their treatment. And the doctor says, okay, you have to move on to the next medication. And either they say, I want to try something else. uh, And they approach us or the doctor refers them and says, listen, before I start you on a different medication, why don't you try this? If it works, maybe it will stop your medication because you're already failing. What's the point in taking that biologic if you're failing it, but then we won't have to move on to the next. So that uh, also happens a lot more so um, with uh, the more we're experienced, we're getting the more collaborations we're doing with the medical centers, the more this happens. And we're very fortunate. We're very happy about that because that sort of mimics our experience from, from Israel. So and yeah, it's not making the, the medication so much better. It's, better. It's just treatment by itself uh, change. And another thing is you said about the nutrition aspect. So I told, first of all, I totally agree. Uh, diet has a huge role, especially in Crohn's disease, especially in small bowel Crohn's disease. Uh, we ha- have a very good friend and colleague, Gautem Sigalbonet, uh, which is one of the co-founders of the CDED diet, which is uh, one of the best dietary strategies uh, with the strongest evidence to induce remission and Crohn's disease. But that's not what we're doing. Our treatment is much more nutraceutical in that sense. You know, you take two capsules twice a day. It's not changing your diet and eating different kinds of meals and, and, and so on, which again is an important aspect of treating this, but it's just not what we do. Got it. So... I may have misheard this as you were talking, but it sounds like the research that you've done has been using the, your CureQD in ulcerative colitis specifically. Yeah, m- m- our, our trials are on UC, okay, because first of all, medicine is important because all of our trials are investigator initiated, and actually most of our trials are also funded by donations of patients. We're not linked to any big pharma or something like that. So it's important for us to know it wasn't industry funded. And we're very proud of that. But the limitation is that, you know, you're underfunded at all times. And the Crohn's disease uh, trial is very difficult to do because to, mostly because you have to follow up with examinations that are a lot more complex than when ulcerative colitis, where you can have a flexi-sigmoidoscopy instead of a full colonoscopy and so on. So we're getting there and now we're going into Crohn's disease as well. We have a lot of clinical experience treating Crohn's disease patients. So this is definitely an option on the table for those patients as well. But our clinical trials were done on ulcerative colitis patients. So people go to the website and they put their information in. Tell me more about that user experience. Like what is it that triggers what reaction from 
from your staff that are talking to these people that are bringing in that information. So like maybe give us a sample patient. So, you know, say a 40 year old woman with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, who's tried and, you know, and has been failed by two biologics and is maybe looking at possible J pouch surgery. Okay. Uh, So just as an example, uh, so that patient, first of all, it's important to note, we do not diagnose in in any way. Okay. That's not the point of what we're doing. Well, we can't do that. And we're mostly on patients. It's not an inclination at, at all. So patients give the information that they already have. This assessment is not in any way in term, um, aimed to diagnose a patient. But depending on their answers, and of course, this is all uh, under very, very strict privacy, EPA compliant, GG power compliant standards, they give this information that, that they have about their, their diagnosis. Including when we use validated disease indexes that we use in clinical trials, it's the same ones we use there. And we it's, it's easier for us based on those answers to get the picture of how, what, what kind of symptoms, how severe the symptoms of this patient's on patient are, and then uh, recommend the appropriate curcuity protocol based on those answers. So they would do that. It, it doesn't take long. You know, it's, it's, it's an eight minute questionnaire, very easy for patients, very user-friendly in that sense. You know, 90% of the people who start off the, the, the assessment finish it. So we know that. And then well, at the end, they'll receive a curcuity, the recommendation for curcuity protocol, which is a six-week protocol. They're, all they have to do is take two capsules twice a day. Very easy. And all the instructions obviously are there and everything is ex- very thoroughly explained. And then they start off taking that. You can order it and it reaches their doorstep and they they start taking it. And once they do, they're also followed up by our, our clinical support team uh, to make sure that they're they're, they're doing well, how's that? And at the end of that six, those six weeks, they're reassessed using a different, much shorter uh, questionnaire just to see how they're doing, how they're responding to treatment. And according to that, they're recommended the next protocol. So that's how it works. And then it's followed up. So it's very adjustable. So patients sort of taper down until they reach remission. And then they have this treatment that helps them maintain that. And if, you know, as sometimes happens down the road after a year or whatever, you know, if they have stress in their lives or infection or, you know, other co-founders, they might have a flare up. They just go in again, re- reassess, and there maybe they'll be introduced a different protocol to reinduce the remission and so on. So it's very adjustable uh, and continuing in that sense all the time. How do the protocols change? So you said How it sounds protocol- like it's a bit of a step down, but is, does that mean like there's more yeah, of the, the di- QD in there versus exactly? The- you okay. got it. You got it. That the difference between the protocols we have five different protocols: uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Okay, and so the red is for severe disease, the blue is for remission and the rest are in between. It's all uh, there on the website for whoever wants to go and check it out. But the difference between the protocols is the ratio between the QD and the, which is more prone, more fast acting and the gut-directed curcumin. So, and just as you said, we sort of taper down the the ratios of the QD and the ratio of the curcumin goes up as the treatment progresses and they reach more moderate or more mild disease state until they reach remission. And again, all the time it's very tapered out because this is a protocol that was, you know, took us years of very, very hard work and a lot of a lot of research, uh, both the literature and things that were done um, by not only by our groups, but groups in China and Japan who have a lot of traditional uh, knowledge and also some good scientific data about these uh, using these compounds. So we had to learn all that, and we had to gain our own clinical experience, and then we had to do the clinical trials. So we have a lot, a lot, a lot of experience with this, and this is the best protocol. We're constantly modifying it. We're constantly improving it based on new data that that we have. 
So, but yeah, that's how we progress with that. I want to do a PSA real quick because you mentioned remission twice. So this is just for the patients who are listening. Symptomatic remission, very important. You get your quality of life back, but it is not clinical remission or endoscopic remission or transmucosal remission. So once you are in symptomatic remission, it's awesome. But I would also recommend that you just check in with your doctor, get some labs done, maybe a fecal cow protein to see how your inflammation is in your system, because you could still have inflammation in your intestines, even if you're symptomatic, if you don't have any symptoms. And so if you still have inflammation, could still be doing damage to your intestines. So while symptomatic remission is very important, and it does give us a quality of life back, just do a little quick check to make sure that you don't have the inflammation in your intestines anymore either. Absolutely. And I'm actually really happy, Robin, that you brought that up because it's important and we totally agree on the medical side of that. And what we did in all of our trials are we not only measured symptomatic clinical remission, but we also used either biomarkers or endoscopy to evaluate that we're actually bringing the inflammation down in the mucosal itself. And actually just the collaborations that we have here with the medical centers, and that's my mission here, I mean, I moved with my wife, three kids and the dog to, to Colorado about two months ago from Israel and with a mission to establish this network of medical centers that we're working with um, uh, around the United States to collaborate, make this treatment accessible, but to also get more real world evidence, more research out on this. And the collaborations that we have, we're checking patients, not only by symptom, by symptoms, but what we call PRO based, which is patient reported outcomes, what the patient can say about themselves. I have less bowel movements, less bleeding, Etc. But we also want to get that fecal cow protecting or endoscopy or any other biomarker in there to really know that we're having the effect we want. Are there any contraindications for this? Like, are there any things that patients shouldn't be doing while they're utilizing this protocol? Yes. Great question as well, because, you know, and this is another, I'll take you back a step and then we'll move too forward. The concept that natural medicine is safe is not something that we take for granted at all. We, we, we don't look at it that way. Yes, probably natural compounds are going to have less side effects or less, or are going to be less hazardous, but by no means we, they should be considered safe, especially when treating population that that has significant organic disease such as IBD. So in that sense, we are contraindicating a few. First of all, pregnant women, not because we know of some side effect that can occur, but we just don't have enough data to support the safety of this treatment during pregnancy. So we uh, that's contraindicated. We also contraindicated in conditions with chronic liver uh, diseases such as PSC or autoimmune hepatitis. Again, before being just precautious against or from the effects that can be on the liver and can be exacerbated by the treatment or by the underlying condition. There are, there are a few more, but you know, they, they are, that's why we ask uh, in the assessment, we ask a lot of questions about concomitant disease and concomitant medications as well. And the, the system that we have actually operates in a way that we will not recommend a protocol that is contraindicated to one of the conditions that the patient fills in. So, so yeah, but those are two main ones, probably chronic liver disease and pregnancy. As you've been doing your tour of America to share the wisdom of your company, I'm curious what the response has been, because I do think, I mean, the patient community in general seems to really be interested in nutraceuticals and, and natural medicine. I think perhaps sometimes the Western medical has been a little slower to be excited about this. So I'm just what kind of reaction have you been getting? Mm, uh, the short question is great. That's a short answer. I'm sorry. Good. That would be, would be great. We've gotten great feedback and uh, the 
longer question would be this. When we started off our journey like 12 years ago in Israel, everybody was really skeptical. The amounts of, of, of you know, faces that I got about from doctors saying, oh yeah, you're just, why don't you just give them some turmeric from the market and they'll all get better. I've heard this a thousand times. Uh, but now it's sort of everybody wants a piece of the cake because you know, everybody, everyone, we're actually being, everybody wants to do the, the next research project with us because you've seen the evidence and that's fine. You know, I, I get it. We, you know, people need to see the proof. They're not just going to believe me because I said, yeah, guys, I think this, this is going to work. That's not enough. People want to see the evidence, especially if they're serious medical professionals. But that was a long time ago in Israel. In Israel. When we started the operation in the United States, that was actually the CCFA conference and that was in Denver this last January. Mm-hmm. And that was when we came together, me and Professor uh, Ben Hoin, along with our uh, third co-founder, uh, Apan. And we came over to because we were presenting our, the results of our randomized control trial and uh, retrospective trial at the conference. And we set up a, a bunch of meetings with, uh, with doctors there. Some of them we, we knew from you know past conferences and their, their, their colleagues, but some of them was the first time that we really met. And you know we were we were skeptical. We were we really did not know what we were getting ourselves into. We would not know. We didn't know what the action is going to be because we don't really uh, we didn't understand at that point that also the medical system in the United States, which now I know that nobody understands. So. Uh, uh, so, no, really. So, but we didn't know how, how the whole thing works and how these going, uh, how these doctors going to respond to you know nutraceutical coming in. But uh, on the other hand, showing very strong evidence to support its efficacy um, in IVD, and we were blown away by how positive uh, these doctors were to this to this treatment. And I was blown away by their professionalism about it. I mean, these are these are top-notch IVD doctors from all over the U.S., from um, Mayo and from Cedar Sinai and from University of Chicago and, and many more and Vince Abrams, which you um, you had a podcast with just recently. And all of them were just really positive, not because, you know, I have a nice smile or anything, but because they were, we presented the evidence and said, okay, guys, this is really, really interesting. And this could be really helpful for a lot of patients. Yeah, like any other medical treatment, it's not going to work for everyone. You have to be also modest about that. It's, it's, you know, there's no, ma- no magic pill for IBD, but this is definitely something that's going to help a lot of patients patients, uh, especially those who are failing some sort of treatment with pharmaceuticals and we need something else. And these doctors want, want to help their patients. I mean, that that's that's what they can wake up in the morning, go to work for. And they say, okay, this is another tool in our toolbox. So this is, and, and, and I'm enjoying every step of this journey, really. So uh, every day I have um, more conversations, more talks with different doctors, discussing new ways that we can promote research about this, new ways that you know, people, doctors are referring patients, doctors are already starting to see the results because you know from January they started referring patients and now they're starting to see these patients come back with oh with good response and remission so this the excitement is is, is growing and yeah it's it's a blast have you looked at this in children yes we have uh we have also uh, a multi-center um, study from Israel the same as we did with the adult population we have a smaller one done in pediatric IBD which is showing showing the same rates of efficacy and safety as we do with uh, with adults. So yeah, definitely. There are a few more restrictions about that. For instance, we don't advocate this treatment um, to be given to children under the age of seven. 
because it's a more difficult disease when they're unfortunately diagnosed at that early age. Sometimes it's an early onset IBD. It's a different pathology altogether. And we just, so there's a few more limitations and exceptions um, on the pediatric population, but basically, yes, we treat kids all the time. So is there a weight option of this? Like, do you have to change the dosage as the children grow or as, you know, even somebody who (laughs) might be aging and gaining weight? (laughs) No, no, it's it's actually because the formulation, it's a good question because I get asked that a lot from Dr as well but it because the formulation is gut directed um and it's it doesn't absorb so it's actually not dependent on weight so we don't modify it according to weight as we do a lot of uh, medications but we do modify it by age we usually give lower dosages to kids uh in general because you respond to lower dose we just found out we just realized that over our cl- years of clinical experience so there's no need for that ex- for that the higher dosages usually it's except for it's a really severe case but yeah we, but it's not dependent on the weight that's what i mean Got it. i'm just interested but you haven't done research like on crowns yet but you're treating crowns but crowns can be anywhere it doesn't have to be in the intestines. And so I'm wondering if you know, if you've seen any benefit, if Crohn's is outside of the intestines, because you're, you're saying that it's gut directed. So if it's gut directed, does that mean that if your Crohn's is someplace else outside of your intestines, that it's not as effective? Have you even looked at that? You girls are really asking good questions and um, I'll I'll answer, you know, with the best, the best I can. No, we haven't looked at it specifically, but I can tell from our clinical experience that um, because it's gut directed, I don't think it's not as effective we want for what we call extra intestinal manifestations that a lot of IBD patients have, such as arthritis or uh, uveitis or psoriasis. So if a patient would be presenting a more severe extra intestinal manifestation and the inflammation in his digestive system itself is re- very low or or in remission, which happens, uh, then we don't advocate using this because it's, from our experience, at least it's not effective. But if a patient does have luminal disease, I mean, the, the, um, inflammation in the intestine, uh, in the digestive tract itself, and they have also one of these extra intestinal manifestations, we know that 30% of IBD patients have them, then yes, a lot of the times when you get the uh, luminal, the internal inflammation into remission, the external intestinal manifestations uh, subside as well. That happens a lot. Uh, so not always, but it does happen. So if there is inflammation that digestive tract, it's active, definitely treat it. Even if you have external intestinal manifestations, if you only have external intestinal manifestations, we don't advocate this. We don't, I don't think it's going to be effective. So similar vein to that, but if it's specifically got directed, did you notice a difference? and people who have J pouches. Well, in J pouch, there's actually, we also have, hopefully we'll be starting that pilot trial very soon because we have seen anecdotal uh, improvement in some of these patients. It's not as effective as it is uh, for treating uh, IBD that has not undergone surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, that for sure. But that's pretty much the case with pouchitis, even for with other medications. I mean, these patients have limited options and so for this condition, unfortunately. But we have seen patients improve uh, with this treatment, even if they, they have active pouchitis and they were actually antibiotic dependent even, but not at the same fixity rates that we've seen with, uh, with just luminal non-surgical IBD. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting to that. These are, you know, it's, it's, they're not as common as IBD. People have undergone surgery, GPAUS, Chinese patients. So it's a bit more difficult to do the clinical trials on these because they're it's harder to retreat. They're just less patients, but hopefully we'll get that on the way within the next year. And then maybe just, I'll have, you just yeah. need to advertise on our, on our podcast because, because we have all the J pouchers over here. Okay. <laughs> 
Actually, that's not a bad idea. Um, if you go, <laughs> we'll do that later. If we have something going out, I'd be happy for patients to reach out. Sure. Since you are the R&D director of this program, I'm curious if there are other compounds that you're looking at, other nutraceuticals that you're pursuing right now that you think have promise, or is that proprietary information? Oh, not at all. We're fully transparent. Uh, you shoot, shoot away. I was just looking at uh, the, the time on my computer because uh, in four hours, I have a, a talk with uh, Israel about with a team in, in Sheba about moving on to the phase two uh, trial that we're doing with a different uh, herbal combination that is for what we call post diverticulitis syndrome, which is not, it's a different form of IBD. It's, it's not, it's not IBD, but people, a lot of patients above 50, and this was uh, shown by one of the doctors at our center, Adilat, she found that a lot of patients over 50, which are presenting sort of IBS like symptoms, you know, abdominal pain, diarrhea, alternating bowel movements sometimes, and, and so on, bloating, actually have had either a, a significant or a a minor diverticulitis episode. And this is sort of a post diverticulitis syndrome, uh, which, and we've had great success in the clinic treating that with a combination of two, of two herbal compounds, one of them being Cura that got directed curcumin, uh, and the other one being a different one, which we call uh, HL. It's a form of, um, of Coptis. It's a, it's a different kind of herb from traditional Chinese medicine that we've been using, which has an antibiotic effect. Uh, so we finished the phase one uh, trial that we did, which was an open label, small one, just to get a power. We saw good uh, efficacy rates, and now we're moving into the placebo control trial. So this is going to be out uh, there uh, available for patients, hopefully within the next uh, three months or so, because we're also doing a, it's not, it's not a, a trial, but we're also uh, making it available for patients based on the data that we have, because it's, uh, it's, it is very uh, effective. Um, and hopefully in about a year or so, we'll finish the, the randomized control trial as well. So yes, definitely we have uh, something going that other than IVD. Here's your curveball question. Why is it that Israel can be so much more free in the things that they research than the United States? Because there's a lot of these alternative medicines or different types of things that are being studied there. And a lot of research is coming out of Israel for things like, I know when we talked to Dr. Kanukin about- um, Yeah, medical cannabis. Thank yeah, you. I was like, there's another better word for that. You know, yeah. I'll when we talk about Yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not weed when you're in the hospital. Sometimes That's it's called right. medical right. cannabis. That's yes. right. So why are you guys so freer with this type of research? Uh, that's, uh, I, I don't really know, but it is, but it is true. He's it like, I've lived what, here for two months, Alicia. <laughs> yeah, it's true what you're saying. We, we, I'm, I always tell doctors that we're talking about, listen, we're not, we're not the smartest people in the room. We don't see ourselves as that, but we, we are uh, fortunate that in Israel, the regulation of food supplements is the same as in the United States, but the, in the, in the hospital setting, in the medical setting, it's a, a bit more permissive in what you can study and what you can't. So it's easier for us. It's a good hub for exploring nutraceuticals, including medical cannabis, which is something we don't do at all. But there's uh, Tina, Dr. Tina Fali from, uh, from Mayo Medical Center is a leader in that field. So there, uh, and so it's easier for us in terms of regulation to do that inside a medical center, inside of medical centers. So yes, and, I, and this is just me thinking all that here because we are we do a lot of innovation in Israel. It's just it's it's, it's part of the atmosphere there. There's a lot of things going on in Israel. We get a lot of bad places. 
news and sometimes you know rightfully so I mean there's a lot of weird stuff going on there and we won't get into that but some you know sometimes some of the things there we did that we do are are actually really helpful and and promoting good medicine good technology and it's part of the at, the atmosphere in Israel being innovative in that sense we're not open we're, we're not uh, afraid of thinking outside of the box so much so and then would you know sometimes the the hub itself and the medical center are more permissive with it so we get a chance to do it so we're definitely not the smartest people in the room but we know what we, we did we have the setting that it's easier for us to promote research that maybe in the U.S. is a bit more difficult all right because you answered that so succinctly and so well I'm going to ask you another question so your your <laughs> your prize for doing that so well is like you get another question <laughs> What are the most common questions that you get from patients when they're looking at this as an, an option to add on? How do I tell my doctor about it? That's that, that's a big thing. I'll tell you a study that uh, that was published. It's actually a bit old, so I hope the data is, is also outdated. But it found that, if I remember the data correctly, that 60% of patients with IBD use complementary medicine to treat their, their disease. Okay. Yeah. But that's okay. Yeah, you nodded. Okay. Everybody knows yeah. that, right? Yeah. But did you know that well, 78% of them say that they don't talk about it with their treating physician? Hmm. And that's okay. Yeah, that's exactly the reaction. Oh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, I'm they know that, but it makes surprised. sense. Exactly. I'm not surprised by that at all. You're not, you're not no. surprised. Okay. This sort mm-hmm. of makes sense. But did you know that 80% of those patients say that they don't have enough knowledge about complementary medicine to treat their disease? And that's what you really got to me. It's just saying that, okay, the, the, the doctors know, we all know that they're taking it. <laughs> they don't talk about it with their, their treating physician. And they say by themselves that they don't even have enough really information to know how to use it correctly. And that's bad. Okay. That's, that, that's, just not that's it's a bad place to be in with which all of these statistics should be corrected well you know and you know 60 percent of patients say using can say the same that's fine i hope it'll be more in the future but they should be talking about it with their doctor freely and not being afraid of how their doctor responds and doctors should be asking about other non-pharmaceutical treatments that patients are taking and patients should be more knowledgeable which i find that actually that they are i feel i was happy to see how knowledgeable the patients that are approaching us are they're reading the scientific literature and they're getting engaged and i hope that that this will be the case with more and more of them because you know data is available out there in this uh, in this era but so they need to know about it and you can come into their doctor and feel free to talk about this the doctors should be knowledgeable themselves about how to respond to this it's okay to say listen i don't know but let's check it out we uh, but we uh, always advocate patients to let their doctors get in touch with with us or we get in touch with their doctors so we can discuss their case at that point and we do that all the time obviously we're not able to get in contact with every patient's uh, doctor but we do try our best especially in the more uh, complicated cases so yeah it's definitely a part of what we need to do so the question that i would get probably most of the time is how well it's 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 a dual question can i take this together with my medication which the answer is most of dependent case-to-case basis but most of the time the answer is yes and second is okay how do i discuss this with my doctor and i just say you know just tell the truth just you know say it like it is okay we have the data here's what we give him forms show this to him tell him that this is what you're taking that, I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about on the show in the times that we have talked about, you know, alternative complementary and alternative medicine is that be honest and open with your healthcare provider because there are some things that do have drug interactions just because it comes from a, from nature, from a plant. It doesn't necessarily mean it's without risks or that Absolutely. there is not some side effects or indications that are contrary. You know, I've, I've given the example of St. John's wort and SSRIs, yeah. you know, that you yeah. can't take together. It's like not good for you. So, and that's, 
again, it's not something you would even think you can buy St. John's wort anywhere, you know, so just be, like you said, open and honest with your doctor. And if you don't want to do your doctor, maybe your pharmacist, because your pharmacist might also that's, know. That, that's also a good idea. And most of the, the food supplement market or industry is unregulated in that sense, you know, exactly like you said, you can go in, you can buy over the counter St. John's Warren and take it. And nobody's going to tell you exactly what kind of dose. Nobody's going to check what kind of medications you're taking. Nobody's going to follow up on you. And then if a patient does it by themselves and the patient can't be all knowledgeable about this, he needs to have a medical professional of some sort who's knowledgeable about it following them up. So that's what we also advocate patients say to don't to treat these as you would medicine in that sense. Be careful about it, be knowledgeable about it, be followed up, et cetera. I would go out on a limb and go so far as to say is if you're not comfortable talking to your doctor about this, maybe you should, I don't know, maybe find a doctor that you are comfortable talking about this with. I'd say that from our experience, at least if it's done openly and it's done respectfully, eight or nine yes. out of 10 cases, it's going to work out fine. And it's yes. going to work every out doctor that we've had on the show, every single doctor we've had on the show, every doctor that I know wants their patients to be able to talk to them about that. And we've also talked about the fact that we feel like IBD patients are pretty well informed. Like they do yeah, read the research. Yeah. They do want to know what's happening in research. They do want to know what's the best treatment, even with complementary and alternative medicine, even with the what all the nutrition research that's happening, all the diet nutrition research that's happening right now. So no, that's that's exactly what I said, that the, the statistics that I was uh, describing were a bit outdated and I hope they've changed, especially exactly that one, especially um, being patients be more knowledgeable about what they're taking. And I think it has, at least with, uh, at least in our experience. Uh, so definitely that's something that we're happy to see because that's going to bring them better treatment. Well, Nir, unfortunately, as much as we have more questions for you, we are out of time. So last question for you is what's your one piece of advice for the IBD community? And you can give advice to professionals or patients or both. Well, I, I, to be honest, I think the, the take-home message will, will, which it was just what we talked about in this last question. I mean, that's going to take a message. Just know that there are other options on the table. It's not just the alternative or complementary non-pharmaceutical world. It's not just the pharmaceutical medication drug world. And nobody has all the answers. And if you, but there, there is a way to find what's safe and effective and what was really proven to be so and do it responsibly. That's the idea. And then it doesn't matter if it was uh, constructed in a lab or was grown in the field. If you do it responsibly and it's safe and effective, it's good medicine. Nir, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so, so much for coming on and talking to us about this. This was super fascinating. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you everyone else for joining us for the podcast and cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Hi, everyone. This is Nir. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, review it, subscribe to it, share it with your friends in the IBD community.